Get to know folks in another part of the country and what's special about their hometown. That's Daniel Siddiqui's advice for America after taking dozens of cross-country trips to every state. I don't like what I see in media now because it's showing that we are very polarized and that is not the country I witnessed. Just offshore from Scotland, you can encounter Viking culture from more than a thousand years ago on the wild and woolly isles of Orkney. One thing Orkney did have, and it still does today, is very fertile farmland, and that's why the Vikings found us such an attractive proposition. The weather turned foul when Frederick Chopin went to Majorca to finish writing his piano preludes. He composed some of the most beautiful piano music ever written, but it wasn't easy. Chopin is composing on this local piano, which causes him more vexation than pleasure. Chopin's piano, Viking history in the North Sea, and the differences that make us American. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Visiting every state in the Union can give you a perspective on what makes it the United States of America. Daniel Siddiqui has gone back to each of the 50 states over and over again. He shares what he likes best about his favorite cities in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Later in the hour, Paul Kilday tells us about the obstacles Frederick Chopin had to overcome to compose his sublime preludes during a working getaway to Mallorca. They take their Viking heritage seriously in the islands that lie just off the north coast of Scotland. Some political leaders in Orkney are even suggesting they should become part of Norway now. Ten or twelve hundred years ago, the Vikings were a thriving society in Scandinavia. With their navigational skills, they traded and plundered far and wide. Today, the 25,000 people who live on Orkney, a windswept island north of Scotland, have a strong connection to Norway and a fascinating Viking heritage. My guide on Orkney is Kinley Francis. He owns and runs a tour company called Orkney Uncovered. And Kinley joins us right now to take us back in time to the days when Vikings ruled the waves throughout northern Europe. Kinley, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak to you, Rick. It's great to finally see you again after so long. Yeah. The connection with Orkney, which is just 10 miles north of Scotland, uh, an island that's part of Great Britain, very strong connection to Norway that goes back to Viking times. Who were the Vikings, and what explains your interest in the Vikings? Well, the Vikings were a, a group of people within the Norse period of time. So Norse period was from around about the beginning of the 8th century up until about the 14th century. And within that, you had the Viking Ages. And so these were men or women born of noble birth. Uh, they were able to go and explore maybe once or twice a year or, or raise different areas. These were known as the Viking Sea Warriors or Sea Explorers. Okay, now you look like a Viking to me. If I ever met somebody who looks like a Viking, it's you. You're five inches taller than me. You're six foot seven. You got a big long beard and a bushy head of red hair, and you're strong as a tree. And uh, you've also got a very uh, impressive and sophisticated understanding of history and archaeology and so on, and that's why you're such a great guide. I know you've, you and your family have been in Orkney for about a generation, but you have Nordic roots, don't you? You are a good example of Norway's connection to Orkney. Yes, that's correct. I have a bloodline that dates back to the 9th century, and so uh, the same sort of period of time as Ragnar Lothbrok, and uh, mostly my, my bloodline is from uh, the Varangian Vikings that were from Sweden and Norway. And they were elite, basically mercenaries, uh, swords for hire for the Byzantine Empire. I just finished a TV series about the art of Europe. I was inspired by Kenneth Clark, who, um, when I was a student, did a, a series called Civilization. 
And Clark started out the Middle Ages by talking about the Vikings. And when I was working on my script for the Middle Ages, you know, Europe was in what a lot of people called the Dark Ages. It's, you know, far from dark, but that was the common term for the period from when Rome fell in 500 until the, uh, the High Middle Ages around 500 years later. But during that period, of course, you have Byzantium, which a lot was going on, uh, centered in today's Istanbul. You have uh, the Moorish civilization, uh, Northern Africa, a Muslim civilization that invaded in through Spain. And in the north, you've got the Viking culture. A lot of people underappreciate and, and misunderstand the Viking culture. How do we misunderstand or fail to, to get how sophisticated the Vikings were? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question, Rick. Um, a lot of people think the word Viking, they think it's some sort of crazy person that would go and pillage and kill a whole lot of uh, people and civilizations. And yes, the, that did go on. But the Vikings, they went to America, they, they traveled us all the way out to the Middle East and the Khyber Pass. They got silk from the Silk Roads for their sails. They were very well traveled. And they owned Orkney and Shetland and, and, and used our islands as a place of huge area for trade and for fresh water. So we, we have a very strong Viking presence here in the far north. You know, they were expert shipbuilders and navigators. I, I understand the word for Russia is Rus, Correct. which is, uh, what, what is that? That was the Russian word for the Vikings who came up their rivers. The Rus, yes, that's correct. Exactly right. Yep. So uh, that's an indication that, you know, 1,200 years ago, Vikings ranged far and wide. And my understanding in much of Northern Europe, people would close their prayer, not with amen, but, and deliver us from the Viking, amen. Uh, the, the Viking presence was there. Yes. But really, it, it, I suppose there was a lot of plunder, but there was also a lot of trade, wasn't there? That's correct. I mean, there, there was a lot of plunder. And at the end of the day, the, the Vikings were given the name the Vikings because of what they did. They raided and, and plundered, but they, they set up communities and they were big into fishing and farming. So if they weren't out on a Viking raid, maybe once a year, they would be living their lives normally as, as farmers and traders and shipbuilders. And uh, that's how they used us here in Orkney. They owned the Orkney and Shetland Islands, used us for shipbuilding and for trade to the mainland of Britain. You know, I've got some Viking history, too. My, my relatives are in Norway, and my earliest memory was visiting Norwegian relatives back when I was just a little kid. And my relatives in the south of Norway took me on a walk just behind their house, and we found sort of the skeleton of a Viking ship made out of stone. And it was a thousand-year-old burial ground. All over Scandinavia, I've been able to find these, in the shape of a Viking ship, stone monuments marking a ceremonial burial ground. Have you encountered any of those? Yes, we have them here in Orkney. There's, a, there's an Iron Age uh, site called the Brock of Gurness. It was properly excavated in the 1950s. And what they found here was that the Vikings used it at some stage for burial. So they buried the elite, the, the women in society, probably the Valkyries or the shield maidens, inside stone ships big enough in which to take their body to Valhalla when they die. The warriors are believed to have been fired at sea and the nobles buried in land in these areas. Now, the one thing Orkney did have, and it still does today, is very fertile farmland, and that's why the Vikings found us such an attractive proposition for an island group. Nice. Orkney is probably a balmy land of promise compared to a lot of Norway. Yes. We, we, one thing we don't have is trees, but yes, we do have a, a much milder climate. We're traveling back in time to the Viking era now with a view from the Orkney Islands right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is tour guide Kinley Francis. 
He's an Orkney native and the founder of Orkney Uncovered, where he leads tours specializing in Viking and military history. Kinley's website is orkneyuncovered.co.uk. Kinley, I made a mistake there. I called it the Orkney Islands, and it's a confusing thing for a lot of travelers. You don't really say Orkney Islands, do you, even though it is an archipelago of 70 islands? Yeah, you did it well, Rick. If you had said the Orkneys, then that would have been a definite faux pas. Uh, But the Orkney Islands is fine, but just as an island group, Orkney. (laughs) Kinley, let's talk about some sightseeing, because uh, by the nature of a society that builds with wood, there's not a lot left. Uh, But there are some beautiful artifacts that ended up in museums. There are some Viking ships. A lot of them are survived because they were scuttled intentionally to block up harbors. And then we, today, archaeologists find them at the mouth of the harbor. What are some highlights for you with your passion for learning more about the Vikings in your sightseeing? Well, one of my favorite things about the Orkney Islands is that literally every place name or area that you visit has a Viking name or or a Norse name, even some of our surnames. Uh, On the island of Hoy, there's a beach called Rackwick. It's got huge, towering red sandstone cliffs that look amazing at sunset. Rackwick means Wreck Bay in Old Norse, and it's an area where the Vikings deliberately scuttled their vessels and had them sunk to stop enemy coming into harbour. There is also a place called the Brock of Bursi, an island that's got old Viking village on it that was once owned by a very powerful Viking lord called Thorfinn the Mighty in the early part of the 11th century. Now, Kinley, the Vikings were famously pagan, but they did eventually convert to Christianity. Tell us a little bit about that transition and and what it meant for Viking civilization. Yeah, so a lot of people think that the Vikings were often at war with the Saxons in England. A lot of the time they're at war with one another. So Norway... Uh, Norway moved towards uh, Christianity 200 years before the First Crusade. So in around about 895, they started becoming Christian. It was the Danes, the Danish, that only stayed on with their heathen and their their pagan gods all the way up until the 12th century. There was a a big mixture between Christianity and the old Norse gods of of Thor, Odin, and and, and Loki, and, and so on, and Freya. So it's often movement between uh, two magnets going opposite one another or the problems within nations. And I think from a historian or an archaeologist's point of view, um, that transition from pagan to Christianity was the mark of the Viking communities going from ancient to medieval societies. Yes, that's correct. I know that when you travel around Britain, you can see some great sites. You've got Jorvik, which is uh, the Viking word for York. York was a key town in English history, and it was a key settlement for the Vikings. And they discovered when they were excavating in the town of York, if you dig down, you find Viking remnants. And they've actually got an amazing museum there. They've got also an an amusing site called Jorvik. But that's a pretty vivid look at a Viking community, isn't it? It is definitely. Jorvik Viking Center, I've, I've been there many a time, and it's an incredible place to visit. The other thing about that sort of area as well is um, in East Yorkshire, I think it is, you've got Stamford Bridge, and it's the, the final battle of the Norwegian king and the Orkney Earl versus the King of England at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. And that was in 1066, 18 days before the Battle of Hastings were wooing the Conqueror. One thing I love reading about that is how one Dane managed to hold back the army of 3,000 Saxons himself for about 50 minutes and who knows how many men he killed, but it was wow. it's called the Berserker wow. of Stamford Bridge. One thing I'd like to finish our conversation with right now, Kinley, is the time-honored question, who discovered America? Oh, well, I would like to say Leif Erikson on that one. 
it's a topic of uh, of discussion and possibly a bit of our disagreement, but I'm going to go with the Vikings. Having said who discovered, of course, there were people already there, the indigenous Americans. But the Vikings, uh, in their mighty ships, with their oars and with their sails, muscled them where the farther and farther west, where they went to Iceland, then they went to Greenland, and then archaeological evidence is pretty convincing that the Vikings had a little settlement on the mainland of North America 500 years before Columbus. Do you buy that? Yes, I'll definitely go with that, Rick. Thank you. Uh, I, was, uh, yeah. I think there's a good chance that before Chris Columbus was it was the Vikings, yeah. And then you've got the indigenous man as well. But yeah, so we'll say the Vikings. Okay, so we'll go to Newfoundland and we'll look for some Viking artifacts. Kinley, thanks so much for being with us. I want to remind people that uh, when you're going to Britain, it's quite easy to nip up north and check out Orkney. And when you're there, you could connect with a wonderful guide like Kinley. Best wishes, Kinley. Happy travels. Thank you so much, Rick. A pleasure speaking to you again, and I really look forward to seeing you again in Orkney in the future. Thank you. Kinley Francis leads tours with orkneyuncovered.co.uk. In a bit, we'll hear how admirers of the composer Frédéric Chopin have located the pianos he used when he wrote works that changed how the world thinks of music. But first, we look at some of our favorite cities in the USA. You're with Travel with Rick Steves. When getting a decent job after college just wasn't happening for him, Daniel Siddiqui decided to turn his gazing at the map into a prolonged road trip. He followed his curiosity to every state in the USA to get to know America better and the people who make it work. Daniel spent a week in each of 50 major U.S. cities to try his hand at their local crafts and cuisine. He documents what's original about each one in his book called Piecing Together America. Daniel, it's good to have you back on Travel with Rick Steves. Can't wait to share. A lot of people, you know, they, they strive to visit every state, and you've visited every state 20 times. Is yeah. that for real? Yeah, it is for real. Uh, like I said before, maybe some other states over 30 times. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and you've got a mission. You're out there yeah. taking notes and yeah. learning, and uh, the subtitle of your book is Serving the Best Features and craftsmanship of every major city. So you've delved into these cities, and you've been taking Mm -hmm. notes, and you've actually worked in each of these cities. And what I want to do is just do kind of a little lightning round here. You know America so well, and every time I venture out, it occurs to me, man, this is a fascinating country. And I might go, oh, that was really cool in Milwaukee. I was just in Milwaukee, but maybe that's not unique. Maybe that's pretty standard all over the place. I mean, I, I love the waterfront in San Diego. Maybe that's just a typical waterfront. I don't know. You would know. So I'm going to try a little lightning round here. Okay. And I'd love to get your just, um, I'm going to blindside you with some ideas, inspired by looking through your book, Piecing Together America. When you think about great urban cities, some of them also have great natural sites. What city comes to mind, a great city that has natural like beauty? Like in the heart of the city, Chicago. you got Lake Michigan right in it, and surprisingly a beach right there. Right there. Right to enjoy the skyline. I thought it was the most remarkable place. I was uh, also struck by your description of Buffalo, which has Niagara Falls. Yeah, Niagara Falls, yeah. Right there. Mm-hmm. What's another one with a great natural? Let's see, Pittsburgh, just the, the cityscape of those Allegheny Mountains and how they built along the hills side. There pretty, you go. Pretty remarkable. And then, of course, they have the confluence of rivers there. I love skylines. Mm-hmm. I like in the Midwest how out of the flat plains in the distance you see a, a shiny modern skyline. Yeah. And it seems like it can go all the way from 
Southern, Tulsa. Southern, yeah, Tulsa and Texas, all the way up mm-hmm. to Alberta in Canada. Yep. What are some of your favorite skylines? I'm going to have to say Pittsburgh, Chicago. Those two come to mind. I love the Chicago skyline. Yes, from the south side is the best. Oh, you actually. know, and uh, in, in Chicago, many of those buildings were once the tallest in the world. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just got famous architects and yep. amazing Gotham City kind of architecture yep. to me. Talk about waterfronts. I mentioned San Diego. I love the waterfront in San Diego. Oh, waterfront? Yeah, and San Diego is unbeatable because you got that weather. You can enjoy it year-round. Yeah, with big naval vessels there for your sightseeing. Yeah, 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 that's true. Washington, D.C. has a pretty cool waterfront with when you can uh, watch the planes land right over the uh, okay. Reagan Airport right uh-huh. underneath there. What about ethnic neighborhoods? Um, I'm going to give that to Chicago also because you got it broken down to Andersonville, which is uh, historically Swedish. And then you mm-hmm. got Devon Street, which is uh, Indian and Pakistani. And then you have Asian communities. You got Little Italy, Greek Town. All in Chicago. All in Chicago. Yeah. A lot of you cities just, are a little more homogenous and a lot of cities are uh, a melting pot. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a melting pot of the Bay Area, but Chicago, you get off on, uh, take the train, you can go to each one. So. Right. What about industrial heritage sites? Cleveland. I'd say Cleveland had built really big, grand, uh, love their pride and their craftsmanship and just their designs. You talked about in your book that Buffalo was once the world's leading grain port. Mm-hmm. And there's even yep. big silos still. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Silo City. They got a lot of their product from Minnesota. I didn't know that um, Pillsbury flour was being shipped to Buffalo to be stored there. There you go. Yeah. And, so. it, and it's got a heritage. It survives to this day. Yeah. Urban trails. There's beautiful trails in a lot of cities. And they okay. make a big deal about it. Yeah. In Seattle, we got the Burke Gilman Trail. Yeah. New York City's got the High Line. Uh-huh. I would say trails. Uh, Minneapolis is fantastic because you got, they call it the Grand Tour or the Grand Rounds. You can go along the five inner city lakes. It's probably best to go uh, with a bicycle. Or you can go from uh, Minneapolis to St. Paul along the Mississippi River. And they've got a, a people-friendly trail that probably oh, was amazing. an industrial zone before. A lot of cities are taking their uh, sort of industrial wasteland and turning it into an inviting people place. That's the way to go. I mean, people, especially the up-and-coming generation, they appreciate nature, parks, exercising, health and fitness. Yeah. They need that. One thing I've noticed is the old sort of industrial-age market halls used to be filled with stalls selling vegetables and fruit. Mm-hmm. And now they're not viable with that anymore, so they bring in uh, small restaurants and becomes kind of a food court mixed with vegetable and mm-hmm. food stalls and fish market and so on. Uh, Seattle's got Pike Place Market, yep. and when you're in Seattle, you're very proud of that. You know, that's Absolutely. the first place you take people. Yep. Is that unique, or is that kind of common? No, it's pretty unique, it's especially when you see the fishermen throwing. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a big deal for <laughs> yeah. Seattle. Must be. No, it's. I would say that's like a, a tourist gem. That, that's something you guys should really appreciate here. What about what about music? Well, I'm my uh, next travel book series is focusing on uh, music through the South, from Lexington, Kentucky, bluegrass to Austin, Texas, the live music capital. So I think so. of you know you think of Austin, you think of Nashville, Memphis, Tennessee, Memphis, or Memphis, yeah, Nashville. You got to New uh, Orleans. Yep, you got to because they got the jazz there. Mississippi, you got the the blues, uh-huh. uh, the Delta blues, and then you got country, of course, in Tennessee and Bristol, Tennessee and That's Kentucky. right, yeah. yeah. 
So uh, the more you know about what the options are, of course, the, yeah. the better travel experience you're going to have. We're traveling around the United States right now with author Daniel Siddiqui. And Daniel is touted as the most traveled person in America, and his book is called Piecing Together America. You can find more about his work and the tour he offers at livingthemap.com. Daniel, when I think about traveling around the United States, I think that different cities have different personalities. Mm-hmm. In your travels, have you thought much about that? The cities actually kind of have a soul and a personality? Absolutely. I mean, Oregon or Portland has their own personality. What's the Portland personality? Just, uh, it, well, it used to be really hip and kind of carefree. And I mean, Portland's different than it was when I went to college here in, yeah. or- in Oregon. But right. uh, yeah, I would say that there is a culture of, you know, I think of Kentucky and the and the mountain culture. It's very... Um, well, How do you say that? Uh, the mountain culture. Yeah, it's definitely very different. Rugged. And then you take that to Boston, that would be quite different. Yeah, the regional cultures. I mean, that's why I love the travel, because you see the way people dress, the yeah. way they carry themselves. I, I always think, living in Seattle, mm-hmm. that people say the Seattle freeze. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-mm. So the Seattle freeze means it's hard to make friends in Seattle. Oh, okay. And a lot of yeah. people who move here yeah. feel like we're already situated and, yeah. and you're, you have a hard time becoming a local. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Minnesota has mm-hmm. this sort of Minnesota, Minnesota nice, nice, right? Yeah. Uh, I ended up marrying a Minnesotan, so I understand the Minnesota. Oh, you nice. married a Minnesotan. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's better than marrying a Seattleite, huh? And <laughs> <laughs> in, in, the, in the deep south, you have southern hospitality, yeah. and you feel that. Yeah. Um, what have you found other than that as you've traveled around the country? Oh, I mean, I, I love the accents, too. The deepest or the, the thickest accents is probably the deep south of Georgia. I remember my host family, I didn't understand a word they were saying when I was staying with them. So I was like looking for a translator. Like I, I didn't want to offend them to say, can you repeat that again? Repeat that again. Another thick accent is the North Dakotans, you know? Yeah. Almost a, a blend of Canadian. Really fun to listen to. And it's funny how adaptable sometimes I have to become that do you pick it I up, start actually? picking it up. Yeah. There. I think I do, so too. So every time I hang out with my wife's family, I'm like, Yo, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I go, yeah. <laughs> you got to be careful because people can think you're you're uh, m- yeah. mimicking them or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's true. When I was in Japan, I, I used to start <laughs> bowing as I left the room. And I, I bet, I, I realized, yeah. does that yeah. look in, in, insulting or something? But yeah. this is people kind of bow when they leave the room. And, and you, you pick up that, if I'm in Scandinavia, I start talking with that sing-songy yeah. accent. No, I appreciate a simulation in, in that way because, you, you know. Simulate. You simulate, yeah, you want to be. You want to accommodate people, I think, when you visit their place. One thing I've noticed a lot when I'm traveling around the country is some communities, some cities are really almost religious about their sports. I mm-hmm. mean, they, they are self-proclaimed mm-hmm. sports towns. Yeah. I mean, this is basketball. Yeah. This is football. North Carolina is basketball. Alabama is football. Have you thought much about that? Yeah. Surprisingly, I think Alabama is a very prideful state with football because it starts from the high school level, maybe mm-hmm. even lower than that. I yeah. mean, you have people going, thousands of people going to a high school football game. Is it a matter of pride? Yeah. They, they, they want something to be proud of. It's um, it's a way of life. It becomes their culture. I say surprisingly Alabama because they don't have a professional sports team in the, in the state. Right. So people really cherish the University of Alabama and Auburn, so that rivalry keeps a tradition going. And, of course, a lot of the young athletes probably aspire to go to those two programs. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with author Daniel Siddiqui. His book is called Piecing Together America, and he's sharing his 
finds, his, his discoveries, his eurekas about visiting every state in the United States many times. He's actually worked in every state in the country to learn more about those states. And Daniel, we are living at a time right now with quite a, a big political divide in our mm-hmm. country. Uh, we've got urban islands of liberalism and we've got rural swaths of conservatives. And if you look at any state in the country, whether it's red or blue, mm-hmm. it's not all red and it's not all blue. And in not. the reddest state, there are islands of blue. Yeah. And those blue, meaning liberals, are in the cities. Yep. And those red areas are away from the cities. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much the way it is. It's yep. not a judgmental thing. Mm-hmm. There's just different life stories and different values and different priorities. What's your takeaway? Because you've lived and worked and met people mm-hmm. more than anybody I've ever met yeah. in the country. What do you make of that? And um, what's what's the state of things in our country this way? Yeah, so I think obviously policies are a matter for people and how they vote. That helps them in their personal life, whether it's their job or their child's school or, or welfare. So the politics are driven by what would be of most benefit for their loved ones because yep. they're struggling to yep. make ends meet. Or, or yeah, or their community. Or so their if it's the environment, if the environment's a question, somebody kind of goes, well, yeah, the environment's important, but I got to put bread on the table. And Absolutely. And that's obviously oil country. I, I'm sure they care about the environment, but they also care about having food on the table. So policies matter. You know, for instance, guns is a very simple I, I grew up in Beria. I never met a single person that owned a, uh, a gun. Mm-hmm. Never met any single person that went to a military. Mm-hmm. It wasn't part of our culture. But if you go to the rural communities, like in Nebraska, where... It'd be you know, actually the opposite. Everybody opposite. you met would have a gun at home. Yeah, because and, their and every properties are bigger. It's, it's harder mm-hmm. for them to get uh, help from yeah. law enforcement if they need. Military is a, a more of an aspiration for youth. So, yeah, it's just a different upbringing. So it has nothing to do with right or wrong. No. It's just a matter of the environment where you come from. And, and you do tend to be like those around you. So you all are it's obviously a, It's impre- kind of culture. Yep. It's a cultural thing. Yep. And it's a matter of fear and love. That's why, you know, all these Californians that are moving all these different places like Colorado, Oregon, Texas, mm-hmm. I'm sure they're going to be either they're going to change to their, their new home or, or they're going to bring their ideas there. So it's well, going to be interesting, interesting. I'm, I'm a little concerned about what they call the big sort when everybody is moving into a community that thinks just like they do because that's going to make it people more dug in. Daniel Siddiqui explores the threads that connect us as a nation by documenting the most original things about each major city in America. He outlines his adventure from Memphis to Jacksonville, Columbus to Honolulu, and even both Portlands in his book, Piecing Together America, serving the best features and craftsmanship of every major city. You can also hear Daniel's earlier visit with us from our Travel with Rick Steves archives. Look for program number 719 from July 2023 at ricksteves.com radio. Another thing that's very interesting to me that I'd love to get your take on, Daniel, is the homogenization of commercial zones. When our parents were young, there was one-off shops everywhere, mm-hmm. and there's a certain built-in economy of a giant chain, a chain store, a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a franchise. Yeah. And if I go to many parts of the United States of America, at an intersection, I see a strip mall, yep. and every business in that strip mall is a chain store. 
Have you noticed that in your travels? Oh yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> you live in yeah. Bend, you live in Bend, Oregon, right? I, yeah, I, I think Bend, uh, Oregon, probably has a yeah, mix. Yeah, yeah, it's a mix. I mean, the downtowns usually are you know uh, local stores, independent stores. But if you go to the strip malls, yeah, you're gonna get your Olive Gardens, your Home Depots, Ace Hardwares, and that's going on throughout the country, except you know certain areas. Like you won't see that in Appalachia very much. What would you see in Appalachia? They're all independent stores. Yeah, that, it's yeah. all local. They don't like outside influence at all. I love that. Yeah. It's the most impoverished area, eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, but it's also the most rich culture and prideful just because they are themselves. There is no outside influence for generations and generations before them. Wow. And you yeah. gain an appreciation for that by traveling there and talking to people. Yeah, I mean, I saw kids at a festival. You know, I was just at an Apple festival there. I saw no youth of outside influence. It's just the way they would dress in Appalachia, and I didn't see any like, oh, Los Angeles Lakers shirt or right. where you would see anywhere else, you know. So it's just they are happy to be themselves. Yeah. So you've traveled top and bottom, mm-hmm. big cities, small town, countryside. Every, every city, places. yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, you understand pretty much some of the dynamics in our country. For the value of travel, what would you recommend to somebody who lives in a small town in the middle of our country mm-hmm. or somebody who lives in a big city in the coasts? Mm-hmm. What advice would you give them that would come out of your travels? I would say swap, you know, you know, swap environments for a very short period. It only took me a week per state to do a job, uh-huh. and I learned so much in that short period of time. Think about that. In one year, you could spend a week in, in every state, yep. and you could and go home I, for two weeks. I got weeks. to stay with the families, yeah. eat their foods, practice their religions. Cheer for their sport teams? Cheer for the sports teams, try their cultural events. I got the chance to sing with the Tabernacle Choir in Utah with the Mormons. Go to, uh, go to the uh, shooting range with their guns? Uh, yeah, I did that. Shot archery with Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma in a contest. Judged a barbecue contest in if Kansas everybody City. everybody took a year off and did that, our, our country, country would be united. I would 100% guarantee that because you can judge people from a distance, right? But until you actually step in their shoes and understand why they value certain things, yeah. then you say, yeah, I understand that, and I actually will vouch for you. You are the embodiment of what travel can do to a person. Well, that's Dan. why I, oh. I don't like what I see in media now, because it's showing that we are very polarized, and that is not the country I witnessed. Yeah. Because people welcome me into their home. Yeah. And it's, I mean, a lot has to do with me, too. I, I try to be as kind as I possibly can, smile, and I'm, you know, very gracious and humble. Mm-hmm. So... That obviously has opened a lot of doors too. So attitude matters. And you've been—you don't need to be rich to do what you've done. No, like I said, it started with nothing. I mean, I came from a affluent background, but my my dad from Afghanistan. Nope, you're not you're not getting a thing from me to support you to do this. So to have this kind of experience, to have this education, yeah. this enlightenment through education, yeah. you don't need to have a lot of money to spend. No, absolutely not. Like uh, like I mentioned, I didn't just, have anything you, you to my name. Yeah. I just had a, an idea and a curiosity that has uh, really gave me the strong why to make this how become easy. Daniel Siddiqui, this makes your book even more interesting to me, Piecing Together America. Thank you so much for your work, and it's been a delight talking to you. Best wishes, pleasure. Daniel. Thank you so much. 
a working holiday in the Mediterranean might have started to feel like a mistake. But the music Frederick Chopin wrote during a challenging winter in Mallorca changed how we listen to music with some of the most sublime compositions ever written for the piano. We'll hear how Chopin wrote his series of preludes and even hear one of the pianos he performed them on, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Frederick Chopin changed how we think about music forever when he composed his stunningly beautiful and nuanced pieces. And he did it on a horrible piano. In his book Chopin's Piano, composer, conductor, and music historian Paul Kilday explores how Chopin, in his late 20s, used the only piano he could get his hands on while wintering on the island of Majorca to compose many of his beloved preludes. These short works, so sublime and so intimate, demonstrated how far the solo piano could take the listener. Kilday's story builds on mysteries, tragedy, international intrigue, even Nazis, as he explores the influence of Chopin's groundbreaking preludes and then traces the fascinating story of that clunky piano long after Chopin died. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to be here, Rick. What a fascinating book you have written. Now, there's lots of great and interesting and influential composers. What's special about Chopin and his piano that merited a book like this in your mind? Well, I actually started from the end of the book and worked backwards in that I was originally interested in writing about what the fate of uh, a lot of instruments in the Second World War because of the Nazi confiscation and looting of these very, very valuable instruments on a scale equal to uh, the looting of art. And then when I started looking at this topic more closely, I ended up finding this one particular piano, and it's this piano that Chopin had with him in Mallorca in 1838 and 1839, this terrible winter. And on this instrument, he wrote, you know, about 10 of the preludes and a lot of other very, very, very important works. And so I decided instead to take this one piano and trace it through 150 years or so and look at the fate of the instrument and also the fate of the music that was composed on it. So why would the quality of a piano matter to a composer? Isn't he just using the piano as a tool to get the ideas in his beautiful brain down on paper? Yeah, yes and no. Um, It it depends upon the composer. And in this instance, uh, we know that Chopin wrote all of his works um, as a great improviser at the instrument. Like he'd have ideas on walks, etc., but he'd go home and he'd improvise. And then there's a long process where he turned these elaborate and rather wonderful improvisations into written works, which were then published, and then the works that we know today. So mm. the instrument on which he worked was integral to the, the pieces and how they turned out, which is why when he was in Mallorca, he was waiting for this beautiful Playel um, instrument to come huh. from Paris. But while he was waiting for this, um, he ended up using this instrument made by a local craftsman, Juan Bowser, and this is the instrument that he had for the majority of his time in Mallorca and on which he wrote these uh, fabulous pieces. So your contention is that the preludes may have been composed differently had his playel from Paris arrived in Mallorca. Oh, without doubt. Um, and there are some wonderful examples that you can um, tweak out of the uh, the pieces themselves. Like if you look at number seven, the, which is this beautiful little um, music box waltz, it's almost as though Chopin uh, was determined not to push the instrument um, beyond its capabilities and there are other instances, like the very famous raindrop prelude, that the middle part of that is almost a Chopin scratching away at the particular sonority of this instrument, which would have sounded very unstable on this rather primitive instrument. So yes, they would have, exactly as you say, they would have sounded very differently 
This is the one that we actually know the most about because Georges Sand, who was Chopin's lover, wrote about this piano in her own letters and also in her memoir of the time on the island where she writes and says that, you know, Chopin is composing on this local piano which causes him more vexation than pleasure. But she writes about going down into Parma from Val de Mossa, which is the lovely monastery in which Chopin and Sand were living throughout this winter, to try and effect the release of the playel piano. There was a terrible rainstorm, and the trip that should have taken just a few hours ended up taking seven hours. But when she came back, she saw Chopin at the Bowser piano playing a piece that she'd never heard before, and it was the raindrops prelude. Mm. And that's where she points out to him that the, the repeated note, um, it was exactly replicating the rhythm of the rain hitting the tiles in the, in the monastery, which is where the, the piece got its nickname from. But yes, she wrote about this um, in, in some detail. I just love that. When you travel, you visit the homes and the places where great musicians were inspired to write their music. And uh, whether it's on a fjord with Edvard Grieg or wandering through Vienna with Beethoven or, or waking up in Salzburg with Mozart, you're saying that a composer like Chopin would be out in nature, collecting ideas, working this out, and then he'd go home and, like, we would go to a desk to write. He would go to his piano to write. And he was sitting there frustrated because he was dealing with this makeshift temporary piano waiting for the good one to come in. On that piano, he wrote a collection of preludes that really changed music piano history in a lot of ways. Well, they really did. Let's deal with the preludes themselves, which since Bach, you know, who had died almost 100 years before Chopin was in Majorca, no one really was writing preludes. And if they were, they were very primitive things. And here Chopin kind of looked back to Bach, but also looked forward to the works of Szymanowski and Debussy um, in the 20th century. Hmm. So they're very unusual pieces in themselves. And then, as you say, he would have these ideas and these inspirations when he was walking. He was a very internal man. His life was lived very, very much inside his head and then would come and work away at the piano. And then Sand also describes how this um, initial burst of inspiration would then take him days and days, often weeks, where he wrestled to try and get back the original inspiration and have it into shape on paper, you know, in the pieces that we know now. We've entered the world of composer Frédéric Chopin on Travel with Rick Steves with Paul Kilday. Paul is a conductor and writer from Melbourne in Australia. For many years, he headed arts festivals and performance venues in England, and he's authored several books about composer Benjamin Britten. In Paul's historical narrative, Chopin's piano in search of the instrument that transformed music, even the pianos have stories to tell as we learn what the composer had to endure to produce revolutionary music for the Romantic Age. Paul, when we think about music and travel, after all, this is a travel show, I love the way composers are inspired by their heritage, by their environment, by their loves. And uh, when we think about Chopin, it's a big combination of that. When you go to Warsaw, you see a memorial to Chopin, the beloved composer of the country, even though he spent most of his career outside of Poland, and it's the willow tree blowing over his head in this big black statue. Have you been there and seen that statue? Yes, indeed, yes. What I've heard is that it's when he was in Paris, he'll never forgot the sound of the wind blowing through the willow trees in his homeland, and he kind of kept oh. a bit of Poland with him. And the interesting thing about Chopin is that not so much in his lifetime, but in the second half of the 19th century, different countries definitely wanted to claim him. So Russia and Poland wanted to claim him. 
Paris thought it should be able to claim him. Germany thought that uh, it should be able to claim him because yeah. Germany was the custodian, if you like, of, of high art and, and right. the great romantic movement in music. And England also had Does a... Does Mallorca <laughs> want him? Uh, Mallorca never kind of really knew what to do with him, not least because, uh, of course, uh, Georges Sand wrote a memoir of the time, you know, A Winter in Mallorca, of their time there, which excoriates the locals and which was incredibly rude about the people that she encountered and the, and the experiences that they had there. So Mallorca for a long time felt very uh, sensitive. Of course, Mallorca is a big Mediterranean party destination now. How was it uh, in the middle of the 1800s or the early 1800s when uh, when Chopin went there? He would have taken a boat from uh, Barcelona? That's exactly right. He took a boat from Barcelona and the journey took around 18, 19 hours. It was very primitive. It was a, a walled town. And so the, the walls that you can see there today completely contained the town as it existed. And of course, he stayed there for uh, only a week or so and then moved outside the city of Palma and then later moved up the mountain to Valdemosa, which is this former monastery um, where they took a cell and were originally planning to stay there for a year. And the monastery itself is, is now incredibly popular. It has a big hmm. Chopin museum there. It has all these artifacts and letters and um, copies of manuscripts, etc. So that's rather beautiful. And you can catch a train which didn't exist in Chopin's time, of course, mm -hmm. but this lovely Art Deco train up the hill from Parma to Solaire. And it's very, very beautiful. Um, and over these lovely aqueducts and, and through these little tunnels, um, it's actually very, very beautiful. But in Chopin's time, of course, far more primitive. And that's, of course, why there, there wasn't really an industry for concerts and for piano making, etc. So that's why Chopin ends up on this very primitive instrument. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Kilday about his book, Chopin's Piano. It talks about the romantic music scene in the early 1800s. It also traces Chopin's piano after Chopin died. I mean, we're, we're a third of the way through the book, Paul, and Chopin's dead, and the book carries on, and suddenly the main character is the piano itself. Where did Chopin's lousy Majorcan piano, the Bowser piano, travel? How could that be the, the, what carries the whole story for you? The piano remains in Majorca, in, in the cell in which uh, Chopin and Sand lived, until 1911. And in 1911, the rather wonderful Polish harpsichordist Wanda Landowska was in Majorca giving concerts because she was Polish, because she was a great grand pupil of Chopin, because she felt hugely the nationalist ownership, if you like, of Chopin. She travels up to Valdemosa, finds the piano there, and offers to buy it. And the owner refuses to sell it, but then two years later um, agrees. And so the piano um, is shipped to Landowska's place in Berlin, where it's photographed rather beautifully. And that's the photograph, actually, that's on the front cover of the book. There it remains until after the war, uh, where Landowska takes a position in Paris. And so the piano moves with her to Paris. And then in uh, 1926, she buys this rather wonderful uh, little villa in the north of Paris, in Saint-Loup-la-Forêt. And it's there that she starts building up or adding to her collection of musical instruments. Mm. And the instruments are, are really quite well known um, because she uses them to teach, to write, to think about how music should be played, not least of all Chopin. And the piano remains there and, and is very well known as the Chopin piano. And mm. Chopin, of course, was now this world figure. And so once the Nazis come to power in 1933, and then very particularly when they take over Paris in 1940, they start their looting of instruments in Paris and in France. And they make a note that they definitely want to get this uh, Chopin piano as an important relic of great you know, European culture. 
Hmm. So, Paul, when we're traveling and when we love music, it's so much fun to stumble onto a site that relates to a composer that, that is important to you. In your travels, apart from Chopin, just composers in general, what are some fun and, and uh, rewarding moments that you've had that uh, people who are traveling might splice into their itineraries? Well, I've been very privileged in that I've been able to play instruments owned by composers, um, and which aren't so easy to do. And that, to me, always seems a, an enormous privilege that you end up playing mm. on a piano that Chopin had with him mm. in, in England in, in 1848, for instance, or Benjamin Britten's really wonderful grand piano, or one of the harpsichords that Wunderland Oscar owned and which is now in the Library of Congress in Washington. So I've been very lucky in, in that kind of practical level. Um, I'm also very fond of the concert halls and, and recital places and archives that composers in particular have built. You know, you only have to think of Bayreuth as this monument to that great either composer or monster, um, Wagner, or the very, very beautiful concert hall that Benjamin Britten built in mm. um, in Snape in Suffolk in the UK. You can't help but be in there and feel that the spirits of these these mm. great uh, men and women who have both built them and then performed there over a very long time are with you. So those are the things that I find more interesting just than tracing a particular itinerary that a composer or a performer right. may have followed himself or herself. It is, there is something to be said for um, letting the, the musical experience become even more sensual by being in the same spot or being in architecture that fits the music and so on. Uh, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Kilday. His book is Chopin's Piano. And Paul, it is remarkable to think that on a godforsaken little corner of the uh, Mediterranean. Of course, it's not godforsaken today because everybody loves it. It's a resort. But back then, it sounded like a pretty humble place, the island of Majorca. Chopin, he wished he had his better piano there, but on a ratty little local piano, composed a series of preludes that really had an impact on on romantic music and, and music ever after. Talk a little bit about this accomplishment. He set out to write a prelude in each of the 24 possible keys, C, C-sharp, D, D-sharp, is, is that right? That's exactly right, in the major and minor of each of those keys. Why, for one thing, would you do that? Bach did it with the well-tempered clavier, right? Yeah, and Bach was a great idol of Chopin's, um, and the only score that Chopin had with him in Majorca, we know, was the 48 Preludes and Fugues, hmm. and testimony from his pupils, Chopin's pupils, suggests that Bach was taught um, all the time in their lessons that Chopin, whenever he was about to give a recital, would play the Bach preludes and fugues from memory. So they were all inside his head. And this was a way of making a homage, if you like, to Bach. And no one had done it on any significant scale since Bach. So Chopin was doing something that was looking back in a way that composers weren't yet looking back to Bach. So he was standing very much outside the romantic norms of his generation, and as I said before, um, also looking forward towards the music of Debussy, for instance, and other composers who would also think that a collection of preludes in all the keys was a, a wonderful exercise. Um, but of course, in the 20th century, they were also not just tipping their cap to Bach, but they were tipping their cap by that stage to Chopin. Paul, of the 24 Chopin preludes, the first one is one of the easiest, and it's also one of the most beautiful. How do you like number one? Number one is, of course, uh, an absolute tribute to the first prelude in Bach's um, 48. And so it's almost Chopin uh, setting out his stall and just sort of saying, these are a tribute to hmm. um, you know, this great collection that came before me. But Bach would not have had the opportunity to do rubato like you could do in the Romantic Age. Isn't that true? 
That's certainly true. And of course, you know, wasn't writing on a piano, was writing on um, a harpsichord. So you didn't have the the volume, you didn't have the dynamic contrast either. No, no, absolutely. Um, Dynamic contrast is one of the things that Chopin almost goes out of his way to establish in the preludes, partly because they're also fleeting. You know, some of them are only, you know, 40 seconds long, and the longest one is only about four and a half minutes. So he's setting to try and paint from the most enormous palette onto the, the largest possible canvas even though, you know, sometimes he's only got 40 seconds to do it. These preludes, by their name, they were supposed to just be fun little amuse bushes, but uh, people are putting them all together and playing the whole thing as a collection that belongs together. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it was André Gide who said preludes to what? But that's not how Chopin thought. And Mm. he also didn't think of them as a collection of 24. That started Mm. happening late in the 19th century. He thought of them as just, you know, uh, little collections. So you might do four of them related by key, or you might do, you know, two of them that are related by a particular interval or character. So it's not Chopin who said we must perform these as 24, but now it would be very rare to hear them performed in any other way. You, Mm. You always hear them in the concert hall as a collection of 24. And, of course, today we're overwhelmed by an abundance of channels. And back then they didn't have one channel. They didn't have any channels. It was gather around the parlor light the candles, and let's listen to the piano player. That's exactly right. And, and of course, Chopin emerged from that particular Parisian culture, the salon culture, where people did expect, you know, wonderful, witty conversations, um, lovely wine, but then also, uh, you know, at some point, a composer like uh, Chopin and, and a pianist uh, like Chopin would sit down and play, and, and mm. that would be the reward at the end of the evening. A beautiful uh, man who runs a little guest house in Warsaw recreates those salon evenings with a young pianist playing Chopin. And it's just gathering together, keeping it simple, being in the moment, and focusing on the music. And that actually is the most uh, beautiful idea as well, because we've moved so far away from the intimate settings where, mm-hmm. where you feel as though you could you just touch the music. That very, very intimate salon culture is something uh, I enjoy finding myself when I travel. Paul Kilday, you have inspired me to go home and work on my scales so I can play one of those preludes <laughs> in one of the more difficult keys. Thank you very much. Pleasure. You'll find a link to Paul Kilday's book, Chopin's Piano, with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Let's close today's travel with Rick Steves with an excerpt of Paul playing the actual playel piano that Chopin himself performed on in England in 1848. It's on display with the Cobb Collection of Historical Keyboard Instruments at Hatchlands Park in Surrey. It's about 23 miles southwest of London. With thanks to our friends at the BBC Radio 4's Start the Week broadcast, here's a sample from Paul of Chopin's Prelude No. 13. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. There's more at ricksteves.com slash radio. My public television miniseries, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, takes you on an exciting sweep through the entire awe-inspiring story of European art history in six hours. Watch the series from the Parthenon to Picasso on your local station or stream it 
on PBS Passport or at ricksteves.com.